This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Nine minutes after five o'clock here on this Saturday morning, and good morning to all of you around the world. Thanks to our technology, we do have the opportunity to talk to people in so many different parts of the planet. Always a pleasure to discuss the most basic industry on the planet, agriculture, producing food and fiber for not only the United States, but so many other countries in the world. So good morning to you. As I mentioned, talking to Matt, it looks like we're going to be in for a, uh, not a heat wave, but certainly comfortable temperatures. That will mean not a white Christmas right here in the area, probably. But uh, a lot going on, and uh, this morning we have the opportunity uh, between now and 6 o'clock to visit with two of our favorite analysts who we have known for a long time. Max Armstrong, in a minute or two, will be checking in with uh, David Hightower of the Hightower Reports to get his uh, take on the year coming to an end and the year that we're moving into. And then uh, we'll talk to Rich Feltus of R.J. O'Brien, based in Chicago. And uh, we've known Rich for a long time and have turned to him often for his uh, take on the marketplace. So you'll get to hear from both of them this morning. And in addition to that, it has been quite a week in the trade world with China, with the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And we'll be talking about that this morning as well. So delighted to have you with us. 30 degrees outside my studio in Huntley, Illinois, and um, heading for a warm-up. So uh, we'll be back to join Max Armstrong and David when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Joining us to talk about the markets this weekend is David Hightower of the Hightower Report. We were in downtown Normal, Illinois the other day visiting with David as he was getting ready to head out of the country. He had just been on the program at the conference put together by our friend Chad Colby. Well, we're starting to lift the wet blanket of deflation. We're starting to get rid of some all that economic fear and anxiety. And maybe we're going to replace that with a maybe not so confident uh, commodity buyer. So instead of them knowing they can just wait, maybe there's a little consequence that they need to buy. We're looking at the energy markets. You're looking at them, watching what's happening there. Talk about the direction of the energy markets and the tie with the commodities, the agriculture commodities that you watch. Well, there's obviously a tie between energy prices and commodities, and it's you know it's a lot tighter than you would realize if you look at long-term charts. And uh, this oil miracle that we've had um, from shale and fracking and everything else is now starting to taper off. 
uh, period of uh, prices below $55 does that because they, even tar sands oil is not profitable at those levels. So now we've seen the rigs fall off. We're going to see a huge amount of uh, less capital spending by the oil companies, and then we see OPEC and, and Russia holding back on supply. So uh, the, the export market for the U.S. has grown tremendously, and so we have the, we're the main point. We're the main focal point of the world oil market. So we're going to see higher prices. And that will affect uh, even vegetable oils. It, it will. And, I, I mean, it's also going to turn uh, a lot of the fund managers from a deflationary uh, perspective into a more of a, not, not inflation, but a reflation. So, so the tide will lift all boats then to some exactly, extent. Exactly. A little bit of buying in a market that no one thinks can go up can have a big impact. When a market is very bearish, there is that opportunity to see a rather quick and vigorous reaction. Is there that possibility for the grains in the United States as we take a look at the early part of 2020? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the grains, I mean, corn particularly, uh, even the, the pork market, which these uh, index funds remain net short on. So, you know, it's just a function of uh, do we deserve to rally a lot because the classic fundamentals? Maybe not. But uh, where is fair value? And I just think it's a lot higher than where we're at. But don't look at uh, prices to rise to the to the stratosphere, but any gain the grower really needs to be watching for. Yeah, and I think you can go back and look and say, when did the uh, when did the tariff war start? And look at those prices and try not to get uh, optimistic uh, beyond that level, because that's probably irrational unless you have some kind of weather issue. Weather issue. We'll be watching South America. Uh, you know, what are the chances that something down there is going to move the needle this winter? Their, their production is so spread out in the southern hemisphere. Haven't they insulated themselves a little bit from weather shock? Uh, they have. And, and, uh, and I would suggest it's probably more uh, in other areas. You know, it might be Southeast Asia where we see this. And uh, it might even come from the palm oil market. So I, I see the products, uh, global products, being a, uh, the most important impact for soybean prices in the coming year. Planting time weather here is going to be watched so closely. The farmer is going to seize any opportunity to plant early, it seems, given the experience of 2019. Any kind of a planting delay this year is going to get some attention, is it not? Yeah, and I mean, when you look over the last eight years or so, we, we were conditioned not, oh, don't worry about it, we can get it in within a day or a week or what have you. The statistics and those are quite accurate, but uh, I think we're going to be a little more sensitive to what might happen than we would be last year. Chinese demand. There is so much uh, hand-wringing over the slowing of the demand in China. Put that in perspective for us. You've done that in the past, but what's going on right now in terms of the slow growth of a demand there? Um, I would say that it reminds me of the of the press that I hear every night from the major uh, television programs that import prices are going up because tariffs, when in fact, Import prices went down according to the broad measures, and whenever I see the demand slowing down on the 15th of every month, I look at the itemization of what China is importing, and we've had record levels in five different commodities in the last uh, four months. So I don't see that. I see uh, cyclically is it the growth slowed down? Yes, but uh, growth is now starting to rebound there, so so will imports. Their interest in our corn has been uh quite interesting to many of us who watch that. Is that sustainable? It is, and we had a problem where they were feeding too hot of protein mixes uh, years ago, and when they came off of that, they, their demand levels went down artificially, and I think we're, we were assuming their baseline uh, was a lot lower than what it really is. So I think you're going to see to continue that. And on that note, 
Uh, it's, it's amazing that we got them to cut a deal that they wanted to do anyway. They need the commodities. So they really didn't give up anything. They, they did what they needed to do. Do we need to worry about fulfillment of an agreement with China? Do we need to worry about their holding up the end of the bargain? Uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about the fact that uh, they have played fast and loose with trade rules in the past. And they have, and that's a, that's a definite concern. But, but I would suggest that this is what they need to do. They need these commodities. And it's a world now. So that it doesn't, it matters that they buy it from us. But in the, to get higher prices, we just need them to be buying. We need them to be hard buyers, and they'll buy more with the global economy that's growing. So maybe they don't come direct to us, but they're going to come to us. The property rights and those other issues are the real hard thing to solve. Just to look at the ethanol industry for a moment, our ethanol producers and corn growers have been very concerned about the interpretation of the uh, renewable fuel standard here and what it has meant to powering down to the ethanol plants. But if I listen to you correctly, you're suggesting we need to watch more closely what's happening in Southeast Asia for the long-term health of biofuels. It, it is, and I was in Shanghai six years ago, and the Chinese government official said we will never get into production of ethanol inside the country because we don't have the infrastructure and the productive capacity to do it. Three years later, they've changed their mind. Uh, they started to import U.S. ethanol through Malaysia and Indonesia, and they were paying 70 cents more a gallon for it. So they were learning how to get it through their uh, cycle. And they're in a process now where they're doing everything they can to reduce the pollution. And ethanol is part of that. David Hightower, based in the Chicago area, he's been analyzing the markets for well over three decades. The Hightower Report. Truly a veteran of market analysis, spending a lot of time in the area of China to get a first-hand look at what's happening trade-wise with that country. And, well, as I've said many times, it's tough to uh, accept a lot of what the Chinese government will release in the way of agricultural imports and that type of thing that affects America's farmers because I've discovered a long time ago after my first visit to China that uh, you have to be careful on believing or not believing what they have to say. It is 21 and a half minutes after 5 o'clock and uh, warming up today and over the weekend and over Christmas. There will be a white Christmas in some parts of the continental United States, but I don't think Chicago and a lot of the Midwest will be one of those areas. But certainly a lot of Christmas activity and uh, an interesting story this week from Maryland, where the White House Christmas tree originates. The Mast family in Mechanicsburg, Maryland. It's a farm that uh, invites city folks out to see what agriculture is all about. It's located about 52 miles outside of Washington, D.C., and that puts them in a prime location to be able to present the Christmas tree for the White House. The farm is home to eight Clydesdale horses, Maryland's only six-horse hitch, as well as the Mast family. Daniel Mast, who is an alumnus of Alpha Gamma Rho, the agricultural fraternity, works with his father to run the family's Clydesdale operation and then helps with delivering the White House's Blue Room Christmas tree to the First Lady. 
For the past three years, the family has been contacted about a month prior to the delivery to confirm their invitation back to the White House. On the day of the delivery, November 25th this year, Daniel Mast and his father Wayne load two of their Clydesdale geldings into their trailer and head toward the national capital. They unload the two horses on the White House South Lawn, where they hook the horses to the wagon before parading down Pennsylvania Avenue, and then drive the team directly outside the north portico of the White House. This year was different for the family, however, as Daniel's son Wyatt, 10 years old, joined his father and grandfather for the delivery, truly making it a family affair. And uh, it's been going on now, I guess, for about three years that uh, the family of the Sutler Post Farm in Mechanicsville, Maryland, has delivered the Blue Room Christmas tree to the White House. And uh, Daniel said, it's an honorable experience. We do weddings, funerals, and other events, but this has the most prestige, greeting the First Lady. And last year, the President, who gave honor to our farm and family. And so that's the story of the Christmas tree in the Blue Room of the White House this year. Incidentally, that uh, Clydesdale team has also made appearances at the 2012 and 2013 Preakness Stakes, one of the crown jewels and the triple crown of thoroughbred racing, also been in the Washington, D.C. Fourth of July Parade, and are the official Clydesdales for the Jim McKay Maryland Million Maryland bred or Maryland sired thoroughbred race. The farm opened its doors over the weekend for its first holiday open house as a fundraiser for local hospital uh, hospice care in the Mechanicsville area. So the story of the Sutler Farm in Mechanicsville, Maryland, and the White House Christmas tree. Been a lot going on this week, uh, well, for the past week and a half or so in the trade world. Uh, David talked about it a little bit. We'll be talking more about it uh, this morning. And uh, yesterday, uh, President Trump had a phone conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping and claimed progress between the two governments on issues that have gone beyond trade and issues that have divided China and the U.S., and uh, they discussed everything from trade to North Korea and Hong Kong, and the two leaders spoke just a week after their envoys sealed the Phase 1 agreement aimed at uh, ending that 18-month trade war that has rattled markets around the world and also raised tensions. So we'll be talking more about that. Uh, We'll be talking to uh, Rich Feltis about uh, the trade situation and what's going on and all of that to come here on the Saturday morning show. Do also want to mention that in all of the holiday activities and the special days that we have in the U.S. throughout the year, I don't want you to miss National Bacon Day. National Bacon Day, December 30th. 
However, many Americans celebrate the tasty slice of life most days and in more ways than ever before. Interesting to note this from the National Pork Board, reporting that U.S. consumption of bacon increased 2.4% from 2001 to 2013, with Americans consuming about 1.1 billion servings of bacon annually. Now, bacon comes from the pork belly. That's the cut of meat that produces the bacon, and it's found on 8.7% of U.S. menus, a 59% increase in the number of restaurants serving products from the cut since 2014. Bacon is served in 7 out of 10 U.S. restaurants. A lot more information about bacon and people enjoying bacon. And it's amazing what has happened to the consumption of bacon, as I just mentioned. I remember the day at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange when we were trading frozen pork belly futures because the demand for bacon came during the summer. We would always talk about the bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich season because that meant the consumption of bacon would go up. So we had a futures contract so that we could take care of the pricing of the product in the off-season that it wasn't consumed, but now it's consumed the year-round. Definitely moved beyond the breakfast table, according to Ray Riley, director of the Texas A&M University Meat Science Center. It's because everything, he said, tastes better with bacon. And uh, he has witnessed the shift at the center's retail store, which offers a variety of meats, including bacon, filet, mignon, spare ribs, and lamb chops, all mostly produced within the university's animal science department at uh, Texas A&M. So uh, remember, December 30th, National Bacon Day, And there will be a lot of activities centered on that food item uh, during that day. Well, we always enjoy your company here on the Saturday morning show. We're coming up to news headlines time, and then I'll be talking to Rich Feltis, and we'll take a look at some of the advances we've made in trade situations during the past week and a half or two weeks. All of that coming up after the break here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's the Saturday Morning Show here on WGN Radio Chicago, hearing uh, John Williams talk about that cruise. I did that cruise uh, under a different uh, vessel situation probably 20 or 25 years ago. Been one of my favorites of the many cruises we've had the opportunity to enjoy. But you talk about history real history. You certainly see it on that cruise. So uh, hope you'll join John and all the other folks who will be heading that way, uh, well, a few months from now. Saturday morning show on WGN Radio Chicago, and it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion this week talking about ending the year on a positive note. I have talked a great deal about the challenging year it's been for the majority of agricultural producers in 2019, 
and most of those conversations have focused on the negatives. But there have been several positives, so as we say goodbye to 2019 and hello to 2020, let's focus on the positives, some that have happened in the last month of the year. Trade agreements, or the lack thereof, have certainly been in farm conversations all year, but now in December we have finally reached agreement with China on phase one of an agreement that will be signed early in 2020, and then work will begin immediately on phase two and three. And if China holds its side of the agreement, it should result in an increase in U.S. farm export sales to that country to an estimated $50 billion over the next two years, and that, well, would be a hefty increase. Then there is what I call the new NAFTA, formerly known as the North American Free Trade Agreement, now known as the USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement. And many people don't realize that when it comes to trade of food and agricultural products, Canada and Mexico are our first and second largest customers, totaling more than $39.7 billion in 2018 and supporting more than 325,000 American jobs. Two big positives for American agriculture. And another one that didn't get much attention but is certainly worth mentioning, this past week, the House of Representatives approved an additional $19.6 million in funding for more agricultural inspectors at land, air, and seaports to prevent African swine fever and other foreign animal diseases from entering the United States. Not nearly as large as the trade agreements in importance, but very important to keep those diseases away from livestock producers here in the United States. So let's think positive and have a great 2020. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Star Media Group at uh, 23 minutes before 6 o'clock news time here on WGN Radio Chicago. And uh, stay with us because in just a couple of minutes, we're going to spend more time talking about market activity involving farmers and ranchers in the United States here with uh, one of our friends and longtime market analyst, Rich Feltus. That all happens when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. For more years than either one of us probably want to admit, we've had the pleasure of talking agricultural markets with Rich Feltus, R.J. O'Brien, based in Chicago. And so we're going to wrap up this year with another look at what has, I have to say, Rich, every producer, every trader I've talked to has said they've never seen a more challenging year than 2019. So I'm interested in hearing your view of the year coming to an end. Well, indeed, it has been a very difficult year to trade. Some historic events, including the record spring moisture, the late planting. Uh, I was just looking at a chart before our telephone call here, and we had a number of twists and turns in the soybean market, particularly 
uh, a Jan-May sell-off, a May-June rally, a July-August break, September-October rally, an October-November break, and now we've been firming up since the Phase 1 has uh, announced in total from high to low, about a dollar sixty range in the soybean market, a buck twenty in the corn market, and about a buck forty in the wheat market. So, uh, quite a difficult year, and of course, layered over all of that was all of the uh, uncertainty, the back and forth between China and the U.S. And uh, to the point, you know, we were, you know, one step forward, two step back in the negotiations, uh, and the market, you know, really became numb. To the uh, to the news that was coming out, some of it very unreliable, uh, but uh, importantly, uh, the growing season, which started very poorly on much lower than expected acreage because of delays, actually finished out reasonably well with uh, moisture, with later than normal frost dates, and a corn and soybean yield that uh, no one would have imagined. Uh, uh, at least as of the November crop report, no one have, would have imagined we would have done that well, given the very poor start we had in the growing season. So despite the uncertainty in production and in trading, there have been opportunities for producers to make some money this year in the market, right? Well, indeed there has, uh, Orion. We had, with that uh, planning delay, we had a very strong rally in the bean market between uh, 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 January and May as the uh, market was got very concerned, rightly so, about whether or not we were going to get the, all of the crops in. And uh, actually, it was in that midsummer uh, time frame, or I should say the late planting period, which was really the best time to sell. And then we had another uh, uh, nice rally here, actually in uh, mid-October, when the president first announced that we were going to do a $50 billion a year ag package with uh, China, but we subsequently sold off. So uh, hopefully in the year ahead, uh, if we are indeed getting settled on the China trade situation, uh, we're going to have uh, a price backdrop, which isn't so concerned about demand, but is more certain that this demand that the Chinese have promised to take from the U.S., that that will indeed unfold and we'll have a little bit more of a reliable price base uh, from which to operate going forward. And while we tend to focus on the soybean trade with China, we should be focusing also with the pork trade, right? Well, indeed. In fact, uh, November, it's interesting that you mentioned that because just overnight, November uh, pork exports uh, out of the U.S. to China uh, hit an 11-month high. Uh, pork is certainly near the top of their shopping list in terms of their needs. Uh, the profitability per hog in China right now is running well over $300 a head. And uh, indeed, they have a need after this swine flu has decimated their uh, crop. They've got the Chinese New Year coming up, which is a time of high pork consumption. The, the Chinese are releasing pork reserves to accommodate for some of that. But certainly, uh, we have the uh, pork to supply them. They have the need. And that's one area where they can help, uh, uh, you know, ring up the sales to reach this $40 billion uh, agricultural import uh, commitment that they've made with the U.S. under phase one. So let's look ahead to 2020. What are your feelings at this moment? And I know they can change any time because of the way markets work, but what are you looking for in 2020? 
Well, I, I think a couple of things, Orion. We know that uh, the uh, soil moisture reserves across the core areas of the Midwest are very good. We know that the fall field prep is ahead of what it was a year ago. Uh, it's likely that the uh, area base for both corn and soybeans will return to their normal rotation, their more normal levels. And we're probably going to see a, a larger gain in bean acreage than corn area. Uh, and I would submit, uh, I think, at least looking at a pro forma balance table on what may happen with a normal uh, corn crop just to return to a trend yield with uh, four or five million more corn acres next year, we could uh, take this corn carry over all the way up to two, 2.7, 2.8 billion bushels. And I would submit to your listeners that our producing and managing risk commercially in, in corn, that there's really a greater risk, I think, uh, in corn prices uh, in the new crop in the 2021 marketing year than there is in this 18, uh, in this 1920 marketing year where we are right now. And so they should be looking at uh, strengthening the board to start thinking about getting some of those 2020 sales off. Um, and uh, as I just said, I think the, uh, the demand backdrop is going to be uh, more secure, stable, limiting the downside price moves in our ag markets if indeed uh, China does uh, commit to that. And just this morning, uh, the president said he had a great call with uh, President Z that they're working towards uh, getting a, a signing ceremony, which may be in Washington in early January, uh, a prominent a Chinese uh, research consulting firm, uh, JCI, also out overnight indicating they think it's very doable to hit this $40 billion a year target. There's a lot of skepticism in our marketplace about whether or not that's going to occur or not, but at least uh, one respected internal Chinese source thinks it's very doable across a range of commodities, not only soybeans, but sorghum, DDGs, ethanol, uh, wheat, corn, uh, pork, uh, their shopping list is pretty long. Uh, we, we, we just want to uh, lock this assuredness in that they are going to be coming into the U.S. to get it. Well, I've said many times during this year of 2019, wondering would I ever be able to do an agricultural market report again without mentioning China. Do you think that it'll still be a hot topic in 2020? Oh, very much so. And they are the largest soybean uh, uh, importer in the world. Uh, China, you know, shift, shifted their demand for soybeans uh, down to Brazil. We lost market share. Uh, at the worst of it, we were, I think we were only doing on an annual basis 12 million tons a year to China. We have been doing uh, 30 to 32 million tons. Uh, to get to this $40 billion level, they're going to have to get back to that 30-plus million ton import diet from the U.S. Um, now, once this deal is locked in, Orion, and it does become assured, and we have some um, evidence that, indeed, they are on an accelerated U.S. buying pace, I think China will fade in the backdrop as, you know, a news item. That we're going we're to go back to the regular uh, talking points of uh, crop conditions, of what the managed funds are doing and uh, uh, foreign weather conditions and so forth, and, you know, the overall macroeconomic backdrop. But uh, right now we're at a, a very delicate point. The Chinese do not have a great track record in terms of honoring their agreements. 
but certainly in the phase two negotiations, which they're anxious to start, they want these remaining tariffs that the president has withheld to be removed. Uh, but the, uh, in the hawks in the White House are very adamant that they want evidence that China is going to live up to their commitment before we agree to take the remaining tariffs off. So it's still going to be a major talking point in, in 2020. A quick uh, question on the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. That was important to farmers in the U.S.? Without question. We trade more with those two countries than we do with China. And uh, this just uh, locks in and assures continued open market uh, access of U.S. uh, corn and uh, soy products and pork especially. Uh, to both countries. It certainly opened a major inroad for our dairy farmers, which are going to be able to push more uh, uh, processed products up into uh, Canada. Uh, It's relatively assured that the uh, Senate will uh, sign the bill. It's going to become law. Um, Mexico has already agreed to the final changes that the Speaker of the House made. Uh, Canada is in the process of their final adjustments. Uh, we're, our sources in Washington tell us it's likely going to be signed uh, before, or likely pass the House, pass the Senate uh, before the State of the Union. So that's coming up just in a month or less. So uh, I think everybody in agriculture has a lot of reason to be very glad this thing was finally pushed over the goal line. And final question, because we're doing what always happens, running out of time. But you mentioned Brazil, and of course that brings South America into the conversation. Any significant changes that you see ahead for their production? Well, I think as producers think about price targets uh, for this old crop and then the 2020 crop, Brazil is not about to roll over and play dead now that the uh, China and the U.S. are back together again. And they will price their beans very aggressively to move those. Uh, beans. Uh, their crop is in good shape. In fact, I would say they're adding production now with the very good rains. Argentina, half of which has been dried, the prospects there for rain in the next two weeks look better. Uh, the Brazil crop alone, uh, Orion, could be up uh, five to six million tons over what it was last year. So uh, right now, uh, the, ch- the phase one China thing is driving our prices higher. But just let's not go to sleep on South America. They're still going to be major competitors and price their product aggressively to compete with the U.S. Rich, always a pleasure, and we'll do it several times again in the new year of 2020. Our visit with Rich Feltis, R.J. O'Brien, talking markets in history and markets ahead. We're at five minutes before six o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And even though we're into a holiday trading scene, we still get some important reports. Cattle producers placed more animals than expected in the feedlots last month, according to the USDA report yesterday. That raises expectations for big beef supplies this summer. And brokers said the increase in placements will likely put some pressure on cattle futures prices on Monday. 
Meat producers and buyers are keeping a close watch on herd size as an outbreak in China of African swine fever, that's a fatal pig disease, is reshaping global markets for pork, beef, and chicken. But here's what the USDA report said yesterday. They said that 2,009,000 head of cattle were placed on feed in November. That number is up 4.9% from a year ago. And analysts were expecting a 1.1% increase. But Rich Nelson, chief strategist for U.S. broker Allendale, said, we're going to have a sharp transition from tight supplies in quarter one to a very well-supplied environment for a summer. In most actively traded February live cattle futures moved up 17 cents to $125.80 a hundredweight yesterday at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. January feeder cattle futures ended lower down 45 cents at $144.27 a pound. The USDA said there were 12 million cattle and calves on feed for processing as of December 1. That's up 2.5% from a year earlier. Analysts had expected an increase of 2%. Marketings of fed cattle during November totaled 1,810,000 head, that number down 3% from 2018, and analysts expected a 2.2% decline. But now there's another report coming out Monday. We'll get USDA data on the size of the U.S. hog herd. Quarterly hogs and pigs report expected to show the herd increase 2.9% in the September through November quarter. That would be up from a year earlier. So farmers in this country have expanded herds to supply the processing houses that opened in recent years and amid expectations for increased Chinese demand due to African swine fever and the toll it has taken on pork numbers in China. Then uh, we take a look at the grain market as we ended the week yesterday. Soybean and corn futures did move higher as traders adjusted their positions ahead of the year-end holidays, and uh, crop prices increased after Washington and Beijing last week struck a Phase 1 trade deal including a commitment by Beijing to increase purchases of U.S. agricultural products. China's top agriculture consultancy said the country will make good on a pledge to buy more than $40 billion of American farm goods as a result of that trade agreement. And uh, yesterday we ended with the wheat market down two and a half cents a bushel, March corn up a penny and a half a bushel. January soybeans up three and a quarter cents a bushel. But now we go into the holiday trading season. That'll mean markets close early some days and closed on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Trading population on the floor will be quite a bit less than it normally is because Traders taking a holiday vacation from trading as well. So 
We'll be covering the market activity this week and uh, pay close attention if you're a producer with corn or soybeans still in the bin that should be sold probably. But keep an eye on the markets during this holiday trading season. Well, that's our time for this Saturday morning. As always, we thank uh, Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering work. We thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next Saturday on the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.